Today on the podcast, Tony and I sit down with Lee and Tegan Crimble, the sisters behind South African-based behavioral linguistics company, Breadcrumbs. The duo lead communications transformation by combining sociolinguistics, behavioral science, and data insights to help provide personal and persuasive communication and build content that nudges action. Lee and Tegan discuss their origins and what drew them into the business of behavioral linguistics before we delve into some discussion around the impact social media has had on the way that we think and subsequently behave and what science lies behind this. Lee and Tegan also share four key takeaways from a recent paper done by Manulife in Canada, which we can all apply to our communications tactics in business and in general life. The co-founders share some finance industry specific tips and tricks before wrapping up with their predictions for the 2024 word of the year after authentic was labeled the 2023 word of the year. Lee and Tegan Crimble, all the way from Johannesburg in South Africa. Welcome to the Kafka Bond podcast. Uh, it's it's great to be chatting to you again. We first uh, had a really good chat over dinner. Uh, unfortunately, you got sat next to me, so you had to put up with me for two hours. And the Gold Coast earlier in the year, I think it was February or March earlier in the year. Yep, yep. And now, on you both for surviving. Yes, it's uh, it's it's hard sometimes to survive a conversation with me, the uh, and having to listen to all my stories. The uh, now one of the we've actually asked you both to come on as per the introduction that everyone has just heard. We've asked you both to come on board because I uh, was brought along to your sessions that AIA brought you out from South Africa. Your linguistics experts and behavioural. Uh, you know, experts and biases when it comes to language, etc. You do run a very successful company working with large companies all around the world. Uh, but can you give us a bit of background of what is, you know, behavioural insights, uh, you know, behavioural linguistics, etc. Just give us all a bit of an understanding. So we always say, I guess, when we start off these sessions with someone new, once you can say it, you can claim it or you can be it. And so, yeah, Tony, you've really got behavioral linguistics down and we are behavioral ling- linguists. I'm now stumbling on my words. Um, and yeah, we've been we've been in this sort of behavioral game for nearly five years. We celebrate our fifth anniversary end of February next year and we might be across your guys' side again. So we'll do some sort of celebrating together. Uh, but we we started Breadcrumbs Linguistics here in South Africa off the back of a, like you say, a global need of being able to tailor communications in ways that stop people in their tracks uh, across industries uh, from any type of brand. And we know that people are so inundated with what we call noise from the moment that we're waking up. We're seeing text messages, we're getting emails, we're hearing things on on podcasts, on radio, TV, and it's just a lot. And so what, what we've really done is come up with a bit of a a communications framework that brings in behavioral insights. How do people make decisions and how can we frame language and communications in such a way that we're almost immediately getting to the point and and compelling people to adopt a worldview and then act in the ways that we want to as brands. And, And of course, within things like healthcare, 
financial services, these are all to, the aim here is to be in people's best interests. How do you get people to adopt plant-based diets? And I know Tony will laugh at this point, we've been chatting a lot about all the various veggie places in Melbourne. Uh, Tegan, my co-founder on this podcast today is very, very pro-veggie and there's a lot of wonderful linguistic nudges to get people to be able to eat more healthily and more sustainably. Uh, But it it goes beyond the health elements uh, to savings and retirements and, and certainly with in your world of superannuation funds and the various investment products that people really need for just a healthier, happier future. And and so that's where we come in from a language point of view. Lee and Tegan, can I ask what what drew you to this in the first place? So I think while Lee is a is a bit more of the linguist in the business, I I come from it um, a bit more from a science perspective. So I've always been interested in really using research and A-B testing and a scientific approach to to how we get people to change behavior. And in our world, that's obviously through through language. Um, So why, you know, why do we make irrational decisions um, where things that may not be in our best interest? And I've actually just got back from a little African bush trip, a safari for some of our audience members. And, and it got me thinking a lot. Every time we came across sort of a new animal, we would ask a bunch of questions about their behaviors and their breeding and, and various things. And uh, our guide, uh, Solomon, would always start with saying, well, it depends on the environment. And then he would go on to, to give us a lot of facts about the animals. But that environment element was really important because cognitive biases play in that space. Sometimes they're beneficial and sometimes they make us do irrational things that aren't in our best interests. You know, why aren't all of us saving for retirement? Why aren't all of us paying off high interest loans as quickly as possible? So I sort of see these cognitive biases as the the angel and the devil sort of sitting on your shoulder, whispering in your ear. And depending on the context, we're going to listen to one and not the other. And that's really where we come in. We're trying to nudge people to make the best decision. That might not be the best decision for them right now, but it might be the best decision for them in the future. Taking to add to that, you know, it's, you talk about, um, you know, just where you are and your cognitive biases that you have. And I actually, as you were saying that, I actually just wrote down some here, you know, we're talking about grammatical English and most of my friends and people know that I'm not usually a person that swears much in general conversation, but I did give you an idea of how an, an, a naughty word worldwide could actually be used in so many different ways with just different expressions on your face mm-hmm. and have completely different meanings. Um, but I've just I've just written down here, so the grammatical English, I mean, you're both South African, uh, and that can be an extremely thick accent, if you, if you, especially if you're talking to somebody who plays rugby. Um, <laughs> we have we have Australian, of course, and you met Jamie before. Our, as you know, he's our resident bogan uh, from Myrtleford up in the country. So, and Jamie thought he was speaking to you in just normal, but he probably threw in four different slang words in the space of one paragraph at you. Uh, you have obviously the Queen's English, but then if you look at England and you go down to North England or down to Cockney, you know, London, it, it's completely different. 
Uh, depends on where you are, and same in Australia, actually. Uh, we've got Scottish. We've got, I've just written out Scottish, Irish, American, Canadian, New Zealand. You know, if you have a if you have a South African, Australian, New Zealand rugby players together, you're in a bar. You wouldn't have a clue what any of them are saying uh, to each other, but somehow they understand each other. So, so when it comes down to you know the English language, but from different regions around the world, if would what hap- would what works in say South Africa would that still work say in Australia or would there be uh, different research that you've done and different data as an example that you might have to uh, come up with something that works better in different regions and different countries? So uh, yeah, I think there are nuances when you go to to different areas when it comes to language. But I think the great thing about the world of behavior and these heuristics, these cognitive biases, these mental shortcuts or different terms for the same thing is that they are quite universal. And so they are appealing to us at a human level and how we've sort of evolved over time. And so while different populations and different target audiences might be more vulnerable or susceptible or engaged by a certain bias and nudged by it, um, we are all sort of uh, um, affected by, by biases across the board. And so when we look in the financial space, there's a lot of research that's being done. A lot of it's coming from Canada, um, some in the from the Behavioral Insights team in the UK, where they've identified the key elements that are sort of stopping us from, from making the best decisions in the future. So we've got the present bias is a big one. We know that we're very focused on now, today, immediately. Um, you order for delivery and you sort of start looking out the window waiting for that that van to arrive straight away. So how do we shift that mindset? And, and again, th- sorry, that, that plays a big role in the present bias was important. It is important. We need to focus on today. But how do we shift that mindset when we're in the financial space to think about our future selves, which is often a very distant, far off person that we relate to almost at the level of a stranger. And how do you get that us to care about that person in the future? So the present bias is one that's pretty universal. We've got the optimism bias. We never think bad things are going to happen to us. It's always going to happen to everyone else. I can smoke. I'm not going to get cancer. I don't have to exercise. I'm not going to suffer from any sort of heart disease. I don't have to save today. I will somehow win the lottery in the future. Who knows? So this optimism bias really um, hinders us quite a bit, paired a little bit with overconfidence. So we think we know everything. We don't need those financial advisors and those experts because, hey, we can just doctor Google it or ask a friend of a friend. Um, And then we've got the status quo bias, which is which is a which is a really strong one in our world, which is we don't like change. None of us are waking up and thinking, how can I change myself today? I think we would sort of live in a much better world if that was our mindset, but it's not. And so we like to conserve our energy, which means making the same decision we've always made, having the same breakfast, taking the same route to work, not switching to public transport, whatever that is. Or we make no decision at all. We just we delay it. Hey, I'm going to do that later. That's someone that's future Tegan's problem. That's future Tony's problem. And so these biases, when we look in the financial space, can be a huge problem because we're dealing with people's financial health, their financial futures. And so we need to find a way to to counteract these irrational behaviors from these biases to make better decisions today for the future. 
Tegan's sounding all very academic here. I'm going to take it back to swearing, Tony, because that was really something that I noticed. It was our first Aussie trip. We were super excited to get across there. Uh, all the stereotypes, as I'm sure you have of us being South African, and sitting next to you at that fairly formal dinner, and then hearing not just you, I'm not just shading you here, there was, you know, everyone was very open and linguistically liberal, is how I kind of put it. And I did. I was using the F word for all the listeners who don't know. So I was <laughs> using, but all the all the different ways of using that that famous word, and we don't edit here, so fuck. <laughs> so it was uh, how many different ways you can actually say that? Or from my Irish mum, it's called feck. <laughs> so it's um, I mean, and it's, yeah. Your Aussie and Irish combo must be the most interesting one from a swearing point of view. But but to your point, that F word is is so diverse and it's almost the economy of that word it, it really is acting as a noun a verb an adverb an adjective uh, in every possible way and there are amazing linguistic reasons for that uh, without getting too uh, yeah too too academic myself you're talking about the phonetics of the sound you've got the harsh the fricative sounds uh, that really stick in the mind and and they've done research to show that we almost store those words in a different part of our brain to such an extent that people have come out of comas, not remembered their own name, but they've been able to use a swear word because they are just such tangible, uh, easily recalled words. Uh, they've also done work to show that uh, you actually feel pain less if you use an expletive. So, uh, yeah, if, you know, patients going through various procedures, those who swore during it or just before it uh, measured their pain as less than those uh, that hadn't. So, 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 so it just shows the power of language almost in a way that transcends uh, just words that we say, words that we hear, words that we use uh, when we write things down. Uh, they actually do have real world implications for how we feel, how we act, and how we experience the world around us. Can I, can I add to or ask a question based on what you both just said? Um, the social media over the last decade especially, but probably more so uh, since uh, Donald Trump won in 2016, social media seems to have become very polarised where people now have tribes. And it doesn't matter if their tribe suggests something, they will believe it, whether it might be accurate or not. So people... And I mean, this just could be me speaking as a grumpy old man, but it just seems to be that people nowadays don't have that flexibility in thinking, I suppose, Tegan, is the way I would uh, use your scientific uh, research on it, but that flexibility where people can actually say, this is my view, oh, hold on, I never knew that, maybe my view should change a bit where it seems to be i mean my sister and myself we love each other to death i love her at least so i think she likes me but it's uh but you know <laughs> she we could not be more polar opposites uh, and so I, i've often wondered how we both had the same parents were raised by the exact same parents but in saying that because we're brother and sister we get along famously well together uh but at the same time we're very different in so many different views or so many different thoughts in the way we have we tolerate each other out of love of being siblings uh, and never had issues with each other. Whereas, you know, if it was somebody else, we might not be as tolerant. Do you think social media has played on that in 
well, I just think when we were younger, maybe it's just the way we think, you know, we had a bit more flexibility or when I was younger, at least uh, way before social media has, do you think that has changed because of social media and those biases are more set in concrete now as a result? Tony, aren't you glad that you didn't have live tweeting and live Instagram when you were going through your teenage years? <laughs> oh, like you cannot imagine. If there's no photos of it, it never happened. <laughs> yeah, I don't think any of us would be in the positions that we probably are in within society and certainly reputationally if it if that had been the case. We're connected on social, ladies, and I'm connected before three of you on socials, and I can tell you now you don't see anything bad or me knocking myself on social media. No, exactly. And I mean, it's LinkedIn, which is its own different type of social media, isn't it? Uh, but but to your point, I think those echo chambers have become very entrenched um, where you you follow people. And in fact, the algorithms are presenting you with the same types of people who have similar viewpoints. And it's, it's very language uh, machine learning driven where you've used a word and they've seen sentiment come through from some of your tweets or your posts. And then they pair you with other like minded people. Uh, to Tegan's point earlier of status quo, we don't like change. So where we're seeing uh, similar viewpoints being presented, we almost gravitate towards those people. I think behaviorally, where from a message framing point of view, we, we've played around with a great example with the vaccine rollout a few years back for COVID. It was obviously something we were trying to promote with, with most of our clients globally, and different people responded to different types of messaging. So Tegan potentially could have been persuaded uh, by medical experts. She's very science-backed. She's very academic. So anything medical research or, or peer-reviewed papers, that was something that she was engaging with and she was persuaded by. Potentially, uh, other people weren't uh, weren't sort of captivated by that. They needed a best friend telling them. And maybe it was a book club member saying, oh, you know, this is something that, that we would endorse. Uh, uh, Values-driven messaging. So forget anything to do with health. But wow, you're going to be able to travel again. You guys are going to be able to walk more than five kilometers or for five minutes outside of your your homes. I believe Melbourne had one of the most intense lockdown periods uh, globally. Not one of not one of the most the most the most the yeah, most. So that and that 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 was that was you you hit the nail on the head with me. That was my thing. Okay, let's get this over and done with because I do want to go out socially again and I do want to I do want to travel for more than an hour outside. Um, but it, it's very true. It's, we, you know, otherwise, otherwise my taxi scientist expert, my taxi driver, he might have been telling me what to do, which might not have been accurate in respect to the science. We pivoted quite quickly in our messaging when we saw that people were responding differently as this pandemic sort of progressed. And we did get to a point where our campaigns to clients, we, we really said to the health insurers that we work with here in South Africa, stop upweighting the health messaging because people aren't responding to that anymore as much as we think they are. They're wanting to travel. They're wanting to have social gatherings. Uh, we weren't, we had an alcohol ban. Um, we had a cigarette ban in South Africa. And so people were wanting to pick up their their, their social habits again and, and, and explore the world again and just South Africa again. And so as a result, a lot of our messaging turned to, look, you can get back to the things that you've missed um, and and in in following sort of medical advice, we're able to get you to that point. I think so it's I, really. Um, oh, sorry, you go, Tegan. I was just going to say, I definitely echo the sentiments of um, happy that social media wasn't part of my my teenage university years. Um, so while Lee's going to add the the spice, I always like to bring it back to a bit of the science and. 
And I think social media and the way we sort of think and subsequently behave is also very much founded on the social proof bias. It's a really strong one for us where we like, even though we we like to think of ourselves as quite unique and, and individualistic, we, from an evolutionary perspective, do like to gravitate to groups. And so the social proof bias speaks to how we move towards where the majority is. It's safe in numbers, right? And, and we can think about how that evolved over time. And so we like to find a group that we think is similar to us, that likes the same things as us, that holds the, sort of, the same sort of value system or morals as us. And then we really suction onto it. And, and I think with so social media, that can just sort of compound over time. And so you end up adopting the same identity as those that are around you that are in the same group. Um, so I think it can become, I mean, it's, it's, you can see the positives of having the social proof bias, but in terms of forming your own opinions and maybe having your own ideas, it can, it can be a bit negative. So again, back to that angel and devil sort of sitting on your shoulder and which one are you going to, to listen to more? Tegan, I was wanting to come back to what you mentioned earlier about the, uh, the optimism bias and in Australia at the moment, there's there's a lot of campaigns going on from um, Skin Cancer Council about one in two is too many and um, trying to push that message that, you know, we so often think that cancer is never something that's going to happen to us, right? But the stats show realistically someone in our, our close circle will be diagnosed with cancer throughout their lifetime. Um, and we see it in the financial advice space a lot when we're working with clients who are um, going through insurance processes and helping them through their claims and whatnot. But when we're going through that application process with clients, more often than not, the sense is that it will never happen to me. Um, so why do I need to put these protective measures in place? What would be some of your recommendations around how we can actually rewire our language when we're going through that conversation with clients to try and get them to grasp that concept a little bit better that you know unfortunately the odds actually aren't realistically in our favor as horrible as that sounds we do need to be preparing for these sort of things um is there some language that we can be using that helps clients to adopt that and actually be able to sit with that realization so, so firstly, to your point on the on the Australian sun, when when we were there earlier in the year, I think we visited Bondi Beach. Um, firstly, the most attractive people I think I've ever seen in my life. But <laughs> but secondly, <laughs> Lee and I were were always a bit shocked because it was it was so hot. And I mean, we're from South Africa, mm -hmm. so we're also used to a, a quite a harsh sun and a and a warm summer. Um, but there were there were people lying just sort of starfished on the beach all day just going different yeah. shades of, of red I think yeah um, and and I mean we were we were slapping on the sun cream every five minutes out of fear of of of, of burning and, and skin cancer but it didn't seem like there was the same sort of um fear in some of the they would they would they dip themselves in baby oil first yeah. and then yeah. go and sit on the beach in the sun it's just it's amazing 
I mean, a yeah. lot of them had a beautiful olive tone going, but but we did worry about you know what are the what are the consequences of this later on. So, um, but but coming back to the financial space, so so it is a tricky one. We we have these this optimism bias, and that's very closely linked with this overconfidence bias of I don't need a broker or financial advisor in my corner. Um, I've I've heard from a from a tweet that this is the the stock I need to invest in, right? Um, but there is a lot of research being done in the space, and so there's actually and and I'll just read it from this list because there were four key takeaways from a recent paper done um, by Manulife in uh, Canada, and they found that the way in which we are delivering information. Um, obviously is changing how people are receiving it and subsequently how they are engaging with it. So the, the first thing that they found from a language perspective is around simplifying content. And that's something that Lee and I are very, um, it's almost the golden rule of our business is to keep content simple always. Because as soon as it's difficult to understand and the financial space has a lot of jargon and acronyms, as soon as that's happening, people start to feel a bit stupid and so they disengage. And so it's like, oh, well, I'm not going to do that right now. That's way too much energy. They put it off. They don't make a decision. So how can we as communicators and as the experts be, be doing the heavy lifting for our clients and simplifying content? And specifically what they found in this paper was that only offer the information and the very few points you need at that moment. We often feel like we have to throw the whole kitchen sink and give every bit of information up front. But how do you sort of drip feed that information over time, giving the most relevant points as you go along? And again, as simple as possible. So, so simple content. Then they found, uh, we spoke about the social norms and how we want to sort of interact with our group of people. How are you framing things in your language to be relevant to that person? So whether it's the neighborhood or the suburb that they live in, their occupation, maybe you're all doctors or, or surfers, um, however people sort of relate to each other, try and make it relevant to that cohort and that target audience. And then probably one of my favorite points from this paper, because I've experienced this personally, is how do you offer information and how do you anchor options correctly? So we always refer to this as the Goldilocks effect. We don't like things too hot. We don't like things too cold. As humans, we usually go for the middle option. So how are you providing information to nudge people towards that middle option, which you know as experts is the best decision for that person? Um, the fourth one is a bit controversial, so I'll go quickly through it. But they actually found that upweighting the expertise of the person backfired. So the authority bias can be powerful. Lee mentioned taking medical advice from doctors during the pandemic. And so we would think taking financial advice from financial advisors would is a no-brainer. But there's a little bit of hesitancy in the space. Well, certainly in Canada, potentially not, not in your market. Um, but relying less on saying, I'm the expert, I can help you make this decision and, and focusing more on the, the other three options of simplifying content, um, making it really personalized and then anchoring options so that people can straight away navigate this sort of minefield of, of decisions.
Tegan, that reminds me of this gain framing, loss framing conversation we were having recently. So a lot of the stuff we're doing with language is how can you frame things in ways that resonate with people? And like we said earlier, Tali, that might be different for you as it is for Tony. Uh, but there's two main approaches here. And you're either looking at the gain frame, which is what is additive, what is the, the, what is the almost positive benefit to a message versus loss framing? What are you going to miss out on or what are you going to lose if you don't follow through with an action? And another behavioral bias we know is very powerful in, in, in across most industries is loss aversion, that we feel the loss of something that we think we already have far more strongly than the gain of something. And uh, there's a great example taken. You'll have to jump in with the two versions in the breast cancer space. Remind me. Uh, showcasing the difference. Yeah, so it was around treatments. And, and when you frame something as this has, let's say, an 80% survival rate, people very much wanted that treatment. But if you went in and said, well, it has a 20%, you know, death rate, that's that's a little bit more scary, right? It's, it's the exact same stat, really. We've just flipped it and, and spoken about the inverse. But how you communicate changes how people react to and therefore engage with information. I think um, it's interesting you speak about that Goldilocks effect of not too hot and not too cold. And something I learned many years ago was um, when you're asking or framing a question, um, and I'll give you an example. Let's say, you know, Tegan, I need you to uh, give me a rating out of, out of from one to 10, one being poor, 10 being great in respect to this podcast today, but you can't say seven. Uh, because so many people tend to sort of say seven, which is good, but not magnificent, you know. So it's, uh, but, you know, the, because the difference between giving a six and giving an eight is huge. But, we, you know, you see, so many people sort of go for that sort of seven, you know, so when, when actually giving one. And I found that really interesting because that would throw people uh, because they, sometimes there's a case of, well, I don't want to offend, but realistically, he wasn't an eight, you know, so it's, um, or no, okay, yeah, I can give an eight because he certainly wasn't a six. So it is interesting when you talk about that Goldilocks effect, sometimes it's the case of not wanting to offend when actually giving an answer as well. Have you found that? Absolutely. So so it's that we don't like to exist on the extreme ends of the, of the spectrum. I mean, there, there are a couple of individuals, and I'm sure we all have some in our mind, uh, public figures that, that do operate on those the ends of those spectrums. But for the rest of us, it's comfortable and it's safe in the middle. Again, it's a bit of that, how we've evolved to be where we are. Uh, we're not at risk if we're in the middle. We're not offending people if we're in the middle. We're not the ones, you know, taking a chance if we're in the middle. So, so certainly that's where people like it's it's comfortable that's where we like to to chill and hang out and we see this really uh materializing i guess when we look at pricing structures and pretty much every brand or business has some sort of product or service that they are promoting and there's normally a financial element that comes with that and the, the choice architecture which is another lovely word in the behavioral economic space that comes with figuring out 
what your pricing structures are going to be, but then certainly in our world, how you're going to frame these and how you're going to present them to your consumer is just so critical. So all of us who drink wine, um, um, Tali, you mentioned wine earlier, so I think you do, Tony. We definitely know you do. Uh, if you go to a restaurant and you are given the wine list or the menu, and in fact, wine lists are normally very separate documents. There's this exclusivity that comes with being presented with your own little drinks menu. You open it up and you now have to choose something. And certainly if it's not AIA paying and you're a bit more price sensitive, you're looking for, for something to nudge you in the decision to choose the wine you're going to end up going with. And to Tegan's point of Goldilocks effect, we, we don't want to be the cheapskate that's going for the El Cheapo bottle, right? at the Especially the if it's a first date. <laughs> yeah, especially. <laughs> well, in fact, but that's context. You probably would then maybe go a more expensive bottle that you normally wouldn't go for because you're trying to, to you know, dazzle. Uh, but but on a normal occasion, you also wouldn't go for the most expensive. You're going to anchor in the middle. And there's various things that restaurants do and, and, and bars do in order to get you to navigate that minefield of various wines. Uh, we've done a very cool podcast on on wines and wine decision making. If anyone wants to to find it on Spotify, look for Breadcrumbs Linguistics. Uh, but quite interestingly, and in fact, what was the Australian wine, Tegan, that we didn't try but was on our list? Oh, uh, Yellowtail. Yellowtail. Oh, okay. Yellowtail. Yep. So that featured just in terms of the linguistics that come into the naming conventions, because uh, you're now you're drawing on this national icon animal uh, being your is that the wallaby is that the kangaroo? Sorry, I'm sounding. <laughs> it the was kangaroo. the kangaroo on the, kangaroo. On the wine bottle. I'm not sure what the <laughs> yeah. national. The wallaby is the the smaller one, the smaller Small version. Okay. Okay. Yeah, the so, kangaroo is the taller, bigger, muscular, more grumpy yeah. version. So you're pulling through these lovely references. There's a bit of patriotism coming through there, but certainly for foreigners, you know, we anything kangaroo, we went completely nuts for. And and so there's various things that are happening. You're talking about the grape, the origin, the flavors, the colors of the the the, the grapes, the varietals. And there's so much that's happening to persuade you using beautiful hedonic language, adjectives, that ultimately gets you to potentially choose one wine over another wine when there's really no difference between them, actually, when you're sitting at that restaurant. And sometimes I, I believe, I think, I think you gave this example in your talk, Lee, that you gave um, at the conference with the wine as well. Because I have heard it come from you, and I don't, I don't know whether it was a dinner you spoke about it, or whether it was in your talk, um, or whether I listened to the podcast. But anyway, I have heard you say, uh, talk about this before. But um, also, to by by all accounts, some of the restaurants will put their their wines in the middle where people will choose, or sort of in that top twenty five percent, and they're actually getting a far greater margin on it for what that wine is because someone like me who is not a wine expert and says I'll go for that price point uh, because that price point seems okay and it shouldn't be too embarrassing. That's exactly it. So they are putting their, their biggest uh, profit margin wines exactly where they know people will be anchored towards. Uh, if they're trying to move food, it also happens with your chef specials. Uh, be very cautious of those. It's normally seafood that probably has two days left and, and your chef is trying to move those things. Not always the case. Uh, but again, your highest profit options are the ones that, that are being pushed on you. And I guess this is a great point to kind of point out the ethics behind behavioral communication and behavioral economics in general. Uh, and it's not a new thing that's been introduced through behavioral linguistics, certainly, but it's something we're very sensitive to that with great power comes great responsibility. And, and you shouldn't be using these tools uh, in nefarious ways, uh, but be aware as consumers, and we get to wear both hats here as brands and business owners 
owners uh, potentially using techniques to drive good behavioral change, but as consumers to be aware that these things are happening. Uh, I, I'm not sure how big Black Friday or Black November is in an Australian market, but it's become a huge thing in South Africa. And, uh, you, you know, people are being presented with 50% off this or buy, buy this and there's urgency and scarcity. You've got to do it in, in, a, in a time frame. And that really does drive a lot of urgent action with people. And you've just got to be careful, I guess, as brands and as consumers that you're not too vulnerable or susceptible to these things in ways that just aren't beneficial for you financially. I did find recently in the uh, Black Friday sale, I looked at one thing in particular that I thought I'd like and realised that the 50% discount was pretty much the same as what their normal price was back in June. But the big advertisement of the 50% discount was nearly enticing for me to pull out my credit card, but it didn't happen. Yeah, and and I think that this world is going to start to become a lot more regulated. We're already seeing things uh, in the uh, European Union, for example, with Booking.com, where they would present, oh, there's only two beds left in this hotel, and it's flashing red, and you 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 don't want to miss out, so you quickly book it, only to potentially phone the hotel or look on a different booking site and find out, no, actually, this hotel isn't full at all. And and that's just not ethical. And I think they're clamping down on that being very dishonest business practice. And so really, it is something that we upweight with our clients that we're very happy to help you frame a message that you are the best brand in Australia with the most number of uh, telco clients, let's just say, but it has to be true. I, it, it makes me laugh. It reminds me of a site I was looking for uh, to, to buy a mirror. And there was one of those countdown clocks, which again, really um, uh, leverages our scarcity bias. And we, we want to act quickly. And it, it, it was ticking down. I had like two hours left and I decided, oh, actually, okay, I'm not going to do this. Only to go back on later to see that the timer had reset. I now all of a sudden had six hours back on the timer. <laughs> Um, so it does also erode a lot of trust, I think, when you when you deal with brands like that. And and trust is one of those fickle things that takes a very long time to get, but you can quickly destroy it. And so I think as brands and businesses, it's quite important to to really value that relationship as well with your clients, especially, I think, when you're in a space like a financial space where trust is just so key and that relationship is so important. The language of trust is actually something we focus on a lot uh, across various industries because to Tegan's point, every brand needs your buy-in and it's that relationship building and that connection, not just for the upfront sale, but for that long-lasting engagement and and and, and sort of uh, not, not losing a client or a consumer from a lapse point of view. And there's many things that can be done in this space, but uh, what we found quite interesting is the word of the year, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary word of the year this year, is authenticity. And and that's so... That's the question I was actually just going to ask, actually. So, yeah, authentic. So being the actual word of the year, and we're showing that a lot of advert, ad, uh, advertisements are not actually authentic. Absolutely. And also your engagements with people. So we always uh, take it back to maybe an insurance space as the example here. Uh, we know how we potentially speak to our broker or financial advisors, and we have a very good rapport or relationship with them. And then all of a sudden, a statement of advice is presented to us. And the language discrepancy between how we've been chatting with them, maybe in person or over a phone or even over an email, very lovely, simple language that we understand, uh, No contract, uh, using contractions, so can't instead of cannot, such a simple example. And then suddenly we move into this very hyper-formalized environment where we're reading a, a legal document 
argument that is so convoluted and so complex and so jargon filled that the it erodes a bit of that authenticity uh, because we feel like hang on we knew we knew the sky or we knew this firm um, and now we're moving into a space where you know this this is a piece of legalese that we just can't make sense of and from that then we lose the trust we lose the authenticity and we lose persuasive elements as well. Do you have any suggestions then about how we in our industry can be better at delivering that document to our clients, given it's, I guess, a it's a compliance regulation that we do have to still provide that sort of document? Is it a matter of providing that document, but then still verbally communicating it to the clients in a totally different language and kind of explaining to them that, unfortunately, this is just a, a bit of legislative um checkboxes that we have to provide you as well or does that further blur the or I guess break down the trust because then they're confused because the way that you're still communicating to them is so different to the document that you're providing them that they still have to sign off on. So uh, I think we uh, as a business get along with almost every team in a, in a company, but we do sometimes bump heads with a, a legal team or a compliance department. So um, of course, Australia is, I think, um, one of the most regulated uh, markets we, we've worked in. And so there is often a lot of T's and C's, a lot of legal elements that need to be communicated, of course. Um, but, but certainly our advice is to try and do a lot of that heavy lifting for the person. Um, and so where you can tweak legal elements and take out some jargon or explain what an acronym means, um, even using breadcrumbs, you know, the name of our business. How do we navigate you through a document? And rather than just a block of text, which absolutely no one wants to read, <laughs> how do you put subheadings and bullet points and visuals or color? Um, and not to make it look like a smarty box, but how do you weave these elements through to really reduce the cognitive efforts that your customer or client is going through? We love personal pronouns. How are you using we, us, our to still keep that personal element rather than using uh, formal language, which definitely disconnects people and puts a barrier between you and your end consumer? How, how are you using language in a fun way? Is there any sort of storytelling you can bring in? Is there metaphors or puns there? So while there's still a very legal, important, serious element to communication, there are a lot of ways we can use different semantics and punctuation and all of these fun linguistic elements to make it easier and more engaging for, for the end user. Absolutely. One of my favorite examples is an American insurer called Lemonade, a very, very pink brand. And um, what, they, what they do is they have their normal financial contracts, but after every block of text, which obviously their legal and compliance teams have told them they're not allowed to remove or tweak whatsoever, they put a little block underneath and say, okay, cool, we know you didn't read that. So let us just explain in like a sentence what that said. And so they're still ticking the box of having all the legal stuff and looking very official and making sure that they, they are, are not going to get sued by anyone, especially in an American environment or American market. But they, but they also have this sort of fun, quirky, personable element that then people can really, really respond to. Lee, you, you mentioned the word of the year being authentic. So do you have any tips or thoughts on what you think the 2024 word of the year will be? So I think it's a phrase and you heard it here first. <laughs> okay. Less, less is more for 24. 
And you'll see that there's a bit of rhyming there as well. We love the rhyme as reason effect, which is also a behavioral bias in, in a way where we we respond to things that sound lovely. So where there's alliteration or rhyme or assonance, uh, we tend to associate that with from early childhood with people that were trust figures in our lives, parents, guardians, older siblings uh, who would read to us or, or sing songs to us. And so these were trustworthy figures to us. And we've managed to carry that through uh, into our adult lives, which is why advertising jingles, even though they're not as popular anymore uh, as they were certainly 80s, 90s TV, you couldn't switch on the television without hearing a jingle that had some element of rhyme. Uh, but they have been shown to really help people with recall and memory. And so back to what we think our phrase is going to be for 24, less is more, going back to that point of simplicity, cutting as many words as you can. We joke that we are the word killers. Uh, sometimes. So people say, oh, call yourself the word Smith. We're like, no, 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 we're the word killers. We are looking to get rid of anything superfluous that is not necessary to get an overall point across, knowing that we just want people to act in, in the ways that a brand and business wants them to, and we don't need any of the other fluff that comes with it. Lee, you must have been bored out of your mind having to put up with all my stories up on the Gold Coast. Really enjoy that. <laughs> I mean, we know we know Charlie already is. No, no, because you punctuated it, Tony, with a swear word. And in fact, it wasn't the F word. Because we're not shocked in South Africans, we aren't shocked by the F word. Let me just say, even though I won't say it on, on this podcast, there is another word that you I guys I was going heard. to correct Tony earlier. I was like, it wasn't that word. <laughs> that you are very partial to, which is a very shocking word to us. Not so much the UK market either. We've heard it used in the UK. Anyways, we're not, we're definitely not going to say that one on air. Uh, you'll have to listen to a follow-up session with us to get any of us saying that word. Uh, but that is why you were so entertaining. And but but on a serious note, the the sincerity and authenticity that come through from someone who, in a professional environment, uh, does drop a swear word. Uh, they they've shown that that if a big CEO is doing a speech to uh, to their full workforce and they throw in maybe a small word I wouldn't recommend that that Aussie favorite yeah, um, used once it can <laughs> it can then actually just show a human side to someone uh, it's almost a little bit of vulnerability and and we like it uh, so so certainly we're not telling you to go out and use all the swear words but if it is a natural part of your vernacular then be linguistically liberal <laughs> I think is how we would I've, end I've, that. I've learned well from Jamie. He's taught me well. So it's um, okay. So it, just to just to end up, because this has been extremely entertaining, and Tali has already been warned that you and I, Lee, could talk for weeks upon end with a mouthful of marbles underwater. So I don't know if you've heard that one before. <laughs> so, it's, uh, so we'd love to have a chat, and yeah, as I, as I said, we we could talk with a mouthful of marbles underwater, the two of us. So it's um, but but based on based on this, so if if we or anyone wants to start using these behavioural communication tools and techniques, how did we go about starting? So I think the great thing is, is that this linguistic toolbox is so affordable and accessible to people. We're all using language. We're all communicating in various ways uh, already in our personal, professional lives. And so to know little nuances, or little tweaks that you can immediately add to make your communications just that much more persuasive. Um, and to end off with an acronym, even though we've been saying a lot through this, don't use jargon, don't use acronyms. Remember FEAST. Make things fun, 
make them easy, make them attractive, make them social, and make them timely. That time-based element is so critical. When you reach out to someone, you want to do it after they've had a meal, had a coffee break. They're far more susceptible to making a decision when our energy levels um, are up. And so where you can time your communications in such a way that you're able to get that effect, we absolutely recommend it. And we do also have a nudge guide if people want to delve a bit deeper, maybe some marketing teams want to have a look. It's a free nudge guide on our website. Um, I think we'll probably link the website in sort of the podcast notes, but head over there. We've got some resources, some nudge guides, some some tips and trends from the financial industry, from the education sector, from the retail sector um, that, yeah, you can almost immediately start incorporating into some of your communications and hopefully you see a, a shift in the dial. Well, on that note, Lee and Tegan, thank you so much. I know it's very early morning for the two of you. Uh, mm -hmm. So we really appreciate it. Uh, and just for all the viewers, they're not in their dressing gowns. They did even get dressed up for us this morning. <laughs> so it's, uh, but it has been an early start for you both. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, I've loved the friendship we've formed over the last number of months. I'm looking forward to you both being back in Australia. That's probably more of a chance of that happening before uh, me getting to South Africa again. But it's uh, we will when you're in Melbourne, we will be going to the veggie bar, maybe Transformers next door, and we will have a couple of bottles of Yellowtail uh, <laughs> ready there for you. And we'll have Jamie there to entertain all of us. And if, in just in the event of we will give you a translation guide or you can just look at Talia and myself and say, what did he say? So it's, uh, <laughs> and we'll help you out as best as we can. So uh, good morning to both of you. Thank you so much for this. Really, really appreciated seeing you guys again. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Bob. Thank you so much. It was awesome. Thanks, guys. The Kofkin Bond Podcast is a product from Kofkin Bond & Co., which we are an authorised representative of Kofkin Financial. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal, or tax advice. The hosts of the Kofkin Bond Podcast are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decision, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from the podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Kofkin Bond website, or you can find resources on the ASIC website and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Kofkin Bond & Co. and the hosts of the Kofkin Bond podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of the country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea, and community. We pay our respects to their elders past, present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today.